name is AJ Exner. I am an elder here. I also uh, help with the city groups, uh, the, the, the small groups that we have that meet throughout the week that are taking a break uh, currently as we get into the summer. Now, for those of you who are our, our normals at Hill City, you might have recognized there's something a little bit different this morning, besides obviously meeting in the family gathering. That happens. That's kind of normal. Um, but the flow, if you guys notice, uh, maybe you felt a little more rushed when you got here this morning. And all of a sudden, man, people are already talking. Uh, well, that's because usually at Hill City, we kind of have a certain flow of how we do things. We usually do one pre-song. Uh, that's what we call a call to worship. We have two songs after that, a sermon. Then usually two more songs with communion. And then generally speaking, depending on how long-winded and how much you got to catch up on the last week, you are usually out of here. Uh, well, today, if you notice, there's something a little bit differently. Uh, and that's because we at Hill City are very intentional with everything that we do. And so really there, there's a method to our madness. I know it seems like we can just kind of throw everybody up here and hope for the best sometimes. Uh, but but there's, there's a purpose behind everything that we do. And so what we try to do in every aspect of our gathering is to follow the narrative of the gospel. So that pre-song, like I said, is a call to worship. And all this is online if you wanted to find it. Uh, but that first song is a call to worship where we acknowledge, where we come together from all backgrounds, all different stages of life, and focus our hearts on Jesus. We then respond after that, the first part of our gathering, where we, we recognize the glory of God, and we then recognize our sin, which oftentimes we do through those first two corporate songs. And then after that, we use the sermon and worship to remember the cross, and then respond through communion and more worship. Well, today we did our call to worship, which was the song Rising Sun. And now I'm here, a song early. So for those of you who are type A, they need things a certain way, <laughs> sorry, I'm here anyways. Uh, but there's, again, a reason to it. And the reason this morning is because the topic of today's message, as I kind of continue to lay down the foundation for the rest of 2017 in the Old Testament, is this morning we're gonna be talking about covenants and specifically covenants in the Old Testament. So you might be asking yourself, why is the idea of covenants this aspect of recognizing our sin? Well, I don't wanna spoil a surprise for you this morning. So we'll just kind of get going into it and I'll let you guys fill in the gaps as we roll. So last week we talked about the main literary styles that are found in the Old Testament. And really my purpose in doing so was to remove the stigma of the, of the Old Testament and to make us, Hill City Church, excited to spend the rest of the year in the Old Testament. And so today we're gonna to be talking about what some theologians consider to be the most important aspect of the Old Testament, and that is these covenants. Because the practical truth of understanding these covenants is that from the beginning of time, God is all powerful, all wise, and all for us. I say that again, that God is all powerful, all wise, and all for us. He's first about his glory in that, but he's then about saving us. And nothing will have a more important role in your life than truly understanding this truth. Whether it's about your finances, your job, or what you choose to do with your life, 
uh, raising children, dealing with conflict, or, or handling anxiety. If you understand God's promises and hopes for your life, then you will have a deep emotional assurance that he is working for your good. So let's talk a little bit about these covenants. So a covenant in general is just an agreement. It's a legally binding contract, or a lot of people would just say it's a fancy word for a promise. So I know today is a family gathering, and I think we have some kids in here today. Now, the kids here at Hill City focus on five foundational truths. It's that God made everything, God is in charge of everything, God is good, Jesus came to save sinners, and today, as we talk about covenants, we're also going to kind of focus on that fifth foundational truth. It's that God wants to talk to us. Now, many of us, about 170, are covenant members of Hill City Church. So again, that, that, that vocabulary of covenant is something that we try to infuse into what we do here. And one theologian would even say that a covenant is the theological counterpart or what you would do next after the confession of faith. That you would say, I confess, therefore I covenant. And then even if we look at it when trying to understand covenants, we get this idea in Christian culture of the covenant of marriage. Now, I think this is where our application comes in today because our understanding of covenants and the depth of our understanding of covenants will approach or will, will impact how we approach the relationship with the person that we have the covenant with. So if we're thinking about in regards to marriage, so my wife and I, Katie, uh, if when both of us, when we get married, and one of us has a deeper, richer understanding of what a covenant is, and maybe, for example, I don't, then that's going to impact the relationship that we have. That when it comes to the assuredness of that relationship, if I don't understand what a covenant is, and I'm just kind of going into it half-heartedly, and she has a deep, rich understanding of what a covenant is, then that is going to just impact our relationship in deep ways. Whether it's trust, uh, sin, approaching, being open, communication, that covenant and our understanding of that covenant is going to impact every aspect of it. And so that's why today I want to spend a little bit of time talking about Old Testament covenants and the covenants that God formed with his people. So Wayne Grudem would basically put it this way, that there are three aspects to a covenant. First, that there's a clear stipulation of the parties involved. Second, that there's a statement of the conditions of the covenant. And third, is that there's some kind of a reward for obedience or a punishment for disobedience. So for each of these covenants that we're going to look at in the Old Testament, we're going to briefly look at these three elements, as well as I want to look about how they apply to us now. And then in the end, I'm going to explain how all of these things, as they tend to do in the Bible, point to Christ. And my hope is similar to last week in the sense that we can gain more of an appreciation for the Old Testament, but also I hope that we can see our place in redemptive history. And see that from the beginning of time, God has been reaching out to us, has been reaching out to his people, trying to find ways to reconcile us back to him. So with that being said, let's get going. I want to take a look at that first covenant. And the very first covenant that was made 
is with God and Adam. So I don't want to get into a whole lot of uh, depth of this story. I think most of us probably understand it. God creates day, night, sea, land, animals, and inevitably man. He finds that man is not good to be alone, so he creates Eve. Uh, but if we're looking at the actual covenant that God forms with Adam and Eve, we have to look at, again, those, those three different aspects. So the first, uh, who are the, who's involved? Who are the parties involved in this? Well, it's between God and Adam and Eve. What about the conditions of this covenant? Well, it's found in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. It says, do not eat of the tree, or in the day that you eat, you shall die. Pretty straightforward. Punishment for disobedience of this covenant is death. But what's interesting is that the implied uh, blessing for obedience is life. It's a life with constant communication and constant community with the creator God. It's a life with no death, a life with no pain, especially a life with no pain in childbirth. Can I get an amen for that? That it's a life where the work that you do on a day in and day out basis is fulfilling and fruitful and a life where there is no sin. The weight of the disobedience that's found in Genesis 3 has resonated for millennia and has ingrained itself into the very fiber of creation. And at its heart is our propensity to call ourselves God. So what does this covenant look like for us now? Well, obviously life would be a lot different had Adam been obedient in this. Uh, because of this, they were banished, and inevitably we are banished from the garden, that there is this inherent longing to get back to this garden, that from the get-go, Paul says even creation is groaning, hoping and longing for this day to be back to where it's supposed to be. And what it does is it establishes, here's your vocab term of the day, the covenant of works. So to make sure as we expand on this a little bit, I want to get a couple of very simple definitions. Uh, the first is sin. And understanding sin is this idea of missing the mark. So a lot of times we can think of this checklist in our minds of what sin is, but, but generally speaking, sin in the, the Hebrew is just missing the mark in the same way that an archer might miss their target. And so we have this target of what we are supposed to be, that God has called us to be, and in our actions and in our decisions, we miss the mark. The second is this definition of atonement. It's simply put, just attaining salvation. And so whether you're writing it down or kind of making a mental note of these, I want you to keep that in mind because I'm going to be using these words a lot moving forward. So if we're thinking of this covenant of works, it's this idea of uh, that we have to earn, that there are works that we have to do to move forward, that in order to participate in the blessings of the covenant, it depends on our obedience or depends on our works, that there has to be a punishment for sin. That in Adam's shame, when they did sin, and when they were banished, that in Adam's shame, and in his doubt, and in his nakedness, God had to shed the blood of an animal so that their shame could literally be covered, so that they could be atoned for. And it's from there, from this point all the way to now, that blood had to be shed for the sin that is committed to physically cover our guilt. And I don't want you to miss this, that in Genesis 3, verse 21, it says, And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife 
garments of skins and clothe them, that he physically had to kill something to give them a covering, to atone for their sin. So now we oftentimes can try to cover or conceal our own sin. We see this in Adam and Eve, but oftentimes if we do try to cover and conceal our own sin, the best we're going to do is attach wilted fig leaves. That if left to our own devices, all we're gonna do is stand shivering and shamed before God. So that while we can try to learn to cover ourselves better and better, God wants to cover us. That the thing that in order to cover us must be undeserved so that innocent blood can sacrifice, so that blood can be shed and that so we can be covered for our sin. And this is a key point I want you to, to kind of, again, take note of, log in your mind as we move forward, that a lesson to learn from the covenant with Adam is that a sacrifice must be necessary to cover our sin so that we can be with God. So the second covenant I want to look at is the covenant with Noah, that like Adam and Eve, it's a pretty common Bible story, even, again, outside of the Bible, a lot of people are pretty familiar with it, that God builds a boat, or that God tells Noah to build a boat because of an impending flood. He does that. He tells them to, to gather two of every animal. Uh, the flood comes, the family lives, everything else doesn't, that everything else dies, and that they, they pop back up after the flood once the waters recede, and they're told to fill the earth and get everything back rolling again. But like I did with the story of Adam and Eve and the covenant that was formed between them, I want to hit on a couple of particular points with this. So if you want to turn to Genesis chapter 9, in verses 9 through 16, we see the actual interaction between God and Noah establishing this covenant, establishing this promise between him. So starting in verse 9, it says, Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as have come out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of the flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. So two things I kind of want to hit on on this. The first is I want us to really focus on how serious God takes sin. The fact that a flood would come and wipe out the earth. That, that God, as it says in Romans, that for the wages, for the cost, the required payment of sin is death. So I want us to take that away first and foremost, how serious God takes this. But the second is more of just kind of an interesting little note I want you to make as we kind of move along this, is to notice what God uses to remind of the covenant. He says a bow, uh, it's a rainbow. But I want you to think about when do rainbows tend to come? Is it before or after the storm? That God's promise for rescue doesn't come without 
the storm, but comes despite the storm. And honestly, I want us to place ourselves, again, basing off of last week when we talked about history and actually real people that we're dealing with here, I want you to put yourself in the place of Noah and his family every time they'd see a raindrop after this. Imagine the fear that would kind of start to rise as they see the Euphrates River start to, to creep up more and more to the banks and that concern that, that would take over themselves as they do it. And they'd have to look at the rainbow and they'd have to remember that, that God, he, he's promised us this. He's promised that this would not happen, that they would have to remind themselves of the promise every time moving forward. So if we're looking at the different aspects of this covenant, the parties involved are obviously Noah and his family and with God um, that we see in, in Genesis chapter six, verses eight and nine, when it's describing Noah, he says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation that Noah walked with God. We see a lot of very strong words in this passage when describing Noah, that he found favor, that he was righteous and blameless. But I really wanna make it perfectly clear that he was not perfect. He was not sinless. But really what we see is almost uh, this idea of what's found in Psalm 32. That what we see is a man whom the Lord counts as righteous is one who recognizes their sin. He does not persist in that sin. He hates his sin and turns to God to seek mercy from his sin. That what we see in Genesis 32, verse five, it says, I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So again, I wanna read this as a historical text that with a historical person with faults just like us and yet found favor with the Lord because he sought him out even in the midst of his sin that when we're thinking about the conditions of this covenant, that God said he will not wipe the world out again. He will not use another flood to do this and that Noah and his family will fill and rule the earth. That the blessings of God's promises, it, it was not conditional on if you were good enough. That God said, God promised, therefore, that's how it's going to be. And so what we see is a commitment from God to his creation that love will prevail which is important to realize because in chapter nine of Genesis, we see Noah making some really bad decisions. And I think it's important to see this promise and to remind ourselves, even as we look at this covenant, kind of the next point I want us to, to remember as we move forward, that the problem of sin will always remain within man. That even after the flood, after seeing the, just the destruction and the wrath of God that Noah still sinned after that, that he couldn't help but sin. I think the lesson to learn is that we are born sinners, that it doesn't have to be taught. I know a lot of kids are in here, so parents, we don't have to teach them these things, do we? That it's inherent to them. And so the third covenant I wanna look at is a covenant with Abraham. Now, Abraham is known as the father of nations. We see him kind of get going in Genesis 12, uh, but for this morning, I want to focus on his life, specifically in Genesis 15. So if you turn to Genesis 15, starting in verse 5, we again see this covenant, really that, that chunk in Genesis 15 
uh, we kind of see a lot of the language that's used. But specifically in verse 5, we says, And he brought him outside and says, Look to heaven and number the stars. If you're able to number them, then he said, So shall your offspring be. He's telling Abram that you're going to have more kids, grandkids, great-grandkids, great-great-grandkids, etc., than there are stars in the sky. But he's telling this to a guy who's 99 years old at the time. So there's some physical uh, physical things in play here that would almost that would affect this so that Abraham's trying to understand this. But yet again, what we see is God promising blessing in this covenant that God's telling Abram that he will give him a legacy of a multitude of nations, that they will have a land to call their own one day, which really is no easy feat, especially in this time, as we're going to kind of hear a little bit more in the book of Judges. And yet he believed that in God, through faith, that he would do it at this point. But what's interesting is that since he believed in God before the sealing of the covenant through circumcision, and he believed in God after the sealing of the covenant, that because of that, Gentiles also get to be included in his family. That's important because that means that we, as Gentiles, were one of those stars. That as God looks and points Abraham to the stars, that we, because of this, were one of those stars. But even in this, let's again not pretend that he was perfect by any means. At the very next chapter, he tries to kind of take things into his own hands, and his servant Hagar later gives birth to Ishmael. So this tells me that there has to be an element of not believing in God, that he sees these miracles. He's even spoken to God, but even in the midst of that, he still doesn't believe him. He still struggles to believe him in this, that God has made these huge promises of blessing to Abraham, saying that he will bless him in more ways than he can ever imagine, and all we have to do is get out of our own way. So the next point I want to kind of focus on with this covenant is that God's plans will come to pass despite us, not because of us. And that's important to note as we think about it and move forward. So the fourth covenant I want to talk about is the covenant between God and Moses. And I talked about this one a little bit last week. Um, But Moses was the man who led the exodus out of Egypt, that he was inevitably given the law to give to God's people that include the Ten Commandments, but he also gives them all the civil, ceremonial, and moral laws that directed the Israelites for centuries. Even modern-day Jews would call these laws the mitzvot, that there are 613 laws that are found in the Old Testament that were given to Moses to give to his people. And the laws that were given to Moses uh, were filed under, again, that vocab that I mentioned earlier, the covenant of works. Talking about that obedience and that, that was necessary and the works that were demanded of the people. And that last week I had mentioned that, that when we think of laws, uh, one philosopher put it that they are the bedrock of society, that without them, men, if left to their own devices, would crumble upon each other, that chaos would ensue. Um, So if we're thinking about laws and trying to understand the question of why are laws important, it also brings up this, this important aspect that, again, I'm going to hit very briefly on, but is in and of itself a pretty extensive topic, and it's this idea of morality. 
So if we understand morality to be the principles that concern the distinction between right and wrong or good and bad, um, culture would often tell us that morality is subjective, that morality itself is dependent upon the culture, that what one culture sees is right and wrong might not necessarily be what this other culture says is right and wrong. And a lot of people get caught up in this. The issue is, is if you have a Christian worldview, and if you understand God, that God is holy. And so if God is holy, he, uh, he, is, he doesn't break laws, that he must follow, that he is good in every way. The issue is, is that if morality is subjective, then if God is holy here and fulfills all the laws, then he might not necessarily be here. Uh, it's a little convoluted, it's a little tricky. But if we understand God to be holy in all facets, that God is in control and he is everlasting, then morality cannot be subjective. That morality must be constant. And so that's why we see the law. That's why God gave us the law so that we can understand, better understand his character and that we have a means to be with him again. That he has given us a way to reconcile that, to, to give us something to shoot for. The law was not meant to be a bondage to weigh us down, but rather the means that we could attain a freedom from ourselves. So what this did mean though, is that the atonement of your sin under the covenant of works was dependent upon your obedience to the law. So if we're thinking of this, this Old Testament idea, and again, thinking of the mitzvah, all these laws that had to be filled and all the ceremonial laws that had to be fulfilled in order for your sins to be atoned for, you had to think, were the priests obeying their laws so that their mediation on our behalf would be accepted? Were the priests following all these specific procedures so that our sins were properly atoned for? Was the sacrifice that we gave sufficient to cover for all the sins that we did? Was the procedures that you used to prepare the sacrifice to give to the priests sufficient to cover all the sins? And even in the midst of all this, According to Galatians 3, the laws themselves, as detailed as they were, still could not save people. That no matter what you did, that you could literally check all of the things off of the checklist, we still had to have an attitude to receive God's grace, mercy, and forgiveness. That all of those things could still be done in vain. Because the law is centered around God's holy, or God's holiness because he is holy. And because he, cannot, because he is holy, he cannot be around sin. He cannot be around sinful people. But yet, even in the midst of that, he still desires for us, his creation, to come back to him. So that's why he set these laws in place. And that's why he set this covenant with Moses to expand on this covenant of works, to give us a way to get back to him, to have community with the holy creator once again. However, the fourth point, is that due to God's holiness, if we are stained with sin, we cannot be with him. So we've had a couple of things, again, trying to wrestle through this, trying to understand what it all means. The fifth one that I wanna talk about today is the covenant that he made with David. Now, David was a great king in ancient Israel. He was considered a, God, or a man after God's own heart. But again, he was an imperfect man that who in the midst of trial 
and in the midst of his own sin, continued to look to God for guidance. And it's in David's great steadfastness in the midst of this that God comes in and gives a very powerful promise. That some people would say this promise is even more powerful than that of Abraham's because of the weight that it involves. And the promise is found in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 11 through 15, if you want to turn there. I would say something really helpful, like where exactly to find it, but the best I could come up with, it's the one after 1 Samuel. Um, so I'll give you a little bit of a chance to get there, but it will be up on the screen. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 11 through 15, in the covenant that God made with David, it says, from the time that I appointed judges over my people of Israel, that we'll see here this, this summer, and I will give you rest from all of your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him from the rod of men or the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. This is a promise through David that the reign of God will reign forever that the parties involved in this were just between David and God, and that if this house was built, if the condition was met that the house was built, then the house would be built forever. That there would be this eternal reign, especially if you note in verse 14, I think this is, again, kind of basing off what I talked about last week when we talk about reading something with a historical perspective or historical lens, but seeing prophecy in it. In verse 14, he says, when he commits iniquity, talking about, this man, that he, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. He's talking about Christ. That's a really interesting note as we, again, try to apply what this means to us now, we see this. And yet, again, moving forward, this covenant doesn't promise that every occupant of the throne of David is going to enjoy the blessings of being the king. But what it does mean is that somebody, from the line of David will come, will come to reign forever again. But then even if we build on the previous covenants that we see, it will also have to be from the line of Abraham. So things are getting a little bit more complicated, but you see these covenants, this covenant of works slowly start to build more and more. And again, the point from this one is that rescue, redemption, and salvation will come through the line of David, which all of this leads to a glorious conclusion. Before I do, I don't want us to underestimate these covenants and to, to cast them aside as unimportant. I want us to, again, feel the weight of these covenants. And I thought that the best way of doing this would be uh, to read some of these Old Testament writers and the hope that these covenants, that these promises brought them. So I have a couple of verses up here in Deuteronomy 7, verse 9. It says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. A couple hundred years later in the Psalms, Psalm 130, verse five, it says, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. And in his word, 
I have hope. In Psalm 27, it says, wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. And in Micah 7, but as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Each of these covenants brought hope of what was to come. And it shows us now that the God of the Old Testament is the same God that we see in the New Testament. Now, this is something that might be a little, again, kind of realign our thinking a little bit. It's easy for us to say that the God of the Old Testament was some angry God full of wrath and anger towards those who oppose him. And yes, that is true. But if we believe that God is truly everlasting, that God is the same now as he was then, then he is still the same loving, caring God that we see sending his son thousands of years later. Which brings us to the end of this this covenant of works and leads us to what we call the covenant of grace. Now, so Christ came to bring this new covenant, this covenant of grace. And the people in the Old Testament under the covenant of, of works would look at us now and to see how this all came to be and would be amazed. And so I wanna, I wanna show you all those five points that I brought up and explain again how all of these just point to Christ. So if, to remind you, we'll put them up, back up on the board. So when we're thinking about Adam, In the covenant with Adam, a sacrifice must be necessary to cover our sin so that we can be with God. The problem of sin will always remain within man, as we saw with Noah. God's plans will come to pass despite us, not because of us, as we saw with Abraham. Due to God's holiness, if we are stained with sin, we cannot be with him, as we saw with Moses. And with David, rescue, redemption, and salvation will come through his line. These and so many more were fulfilled by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That in Adam, Jesus came to be the true and better Adam that could reverse the covenant of works and be the necessary sacrifice to cover our sins. That in Romans 5, verses 18 and 19, it says, as the one trespass led to condemnation for all men, So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. That Jesus, being the better Adam, made him a better sacrifice, so that in Noah, Jesus could complete the story. That what we see in first and second Peter a reference to the flood as a final judgment and the ark as the final salvation. However, we know that even after the flood in Genesis, God still hates sin, that Noah and ourselves, we still sin and that no flood could ever permanently remedy this problem. However, after the ark hit land in Genesis, Noah built an altar to the Lord before the covenant was given and God finding the sacrifice at the altar to be sufficient gives the promise of an even better ark. Jesus is the better ark. Jesus is the better sacrifice. He alone gives us away from the flood of judgment and has cleansed us from within and has covered our sin. So that in Abraham, Jesus is the means by which his offspring will bless and fill the world. That despite 
Abram's efforts to fulfill the covenant on his own by his own means, that people both in his direct family line and outside of it will get to experience the joy and the blessing that comes from a knowing faith in God. That's similar to what I said last week, that yes, he is my God. But on the flip side, we are his people. That no matter who you are, where you're from, or what you do, that if you have a faith in him, you shall be his people. And it's this spectacular promise that cannot be bought or earned, but it can be believed. And if it is believed, then everything changes. So that in Moses, Jesus came to fulfill that law. That we needed a way, we needed someone to get us to a perfect and holy God. That Jesus fulfilled the moral laws by being perfect and blameless in every way. That Jesus fulfilled the ceremonial laws by being perfect and no longer making it necessary to clean himself to come to God in the first place. That Jesus came to fulfill the civil laws by helping people understand what true love looks like by dying on a cross. That in David, Christ will come to reign again. That despite dying on that cross, that he will come to reign on earth forever, making full the promise that was made and to save the Gentiles, to save us. And we see a reference to this in Acts chapter 15, verses 16 through 18. That says, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all of the Gentiles who are called by my name. Psst, that's us. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. That Jesus came to fulfill, to fulfill prophecy, to fulfill the law, and to fulfill the covenant so that a new covenant could be implemented. And it is this new covenant, the covenant of grace that we find ourselves in today, a new covenant that rescues, redeems, and saves all who enter it. If we look at, again, the, what this covenant, all the, the different stipulations that are required, the parties are that are involved are God and the people whom he will save using Christ as the mediator on our behalf, that the condition of participation in this covenant of grace is a faith in the work of Christ. That the blessing that we are to receive by the obedience of this is life as it was meant to be. And so today I wanna to ask you to reflect, to think about in your own life, what covenant are you under? Do you find yourself still under the covenant of works? Because if you're not in the covenant of grace, even today, you're in the covenant of works. A covenant whose conditions make you feel like you're trying to earn your way to heaven. To try and to try and to try, just to try and be good enough. Living a life of shame and guilt that hurts relationships and hinders 
decision-making? Or are you under the covenant of grace? A covenant that takes those sins and their shame and the guilt that comes with those and puts them on Christ at the cross, allowing you to come to the throne, to come to God already righteous, no longer needing to earn that righteousness. If you are under the covenant of grace, this is where you find yourself. And so if you, are, if you are under this covenant of grace, we invite you here in just a little bit to receive communion, to tear off a piece of the bread, to dip it in the juice, to remember who made it possible, to remember who made it possible for you to celebrate and to find peace in the covenant of grace. But if you aren't a Christian, if you're still under this covenant of works, just, just stay in your seat, it's okay. But if you have anything you wanna talk about, myself and Daniel,